Hey guys, just a quick word before we dive into this week's episode. I am really excited to tell you that the episode this week is brought to you in part by Studio Sweden. If you haven't heard of them, Studio is a headphones company, but these aren't any old headphones. Not only do they provide super high quality sound, they're also really design conscious. I go through a lot of headphones and was in absolute dire need of some new ones. And guys, let me tell you, I was thrilled when I opened my box from Studio. I got a pair of on-ear headphones for when I'm working, the Studio Regent model, and they are literally so cool. They work great for when I'm editing on my laptop, but they're not bulky or cumbersome. I think they're just about the only on-ear headphones that you'll find me outside of the house wearing. And these have really cool interchangeable caps so you can customize their look. There was absolutely no style sacrificed for the substance of these Regent headphones and they're wireless with over 24 hours of active battery life. I'm also totally in love with the Studio 12, which are one of Studio's truly wireless in-ear options. These guys are a lifesaver. They have seven hours of battery life and they come in a stylish little case that holds four more charges. There's a mic on both earbuds, should anyone be silly enough to actually call you while you're listening to your favorite podcasts, and it'll connect pretty much instantly with any device with Bluetooth on it. But beyond all the fancy technical stuff, I now no longer have to worry about strangling myself with my wired headphones or having to replace them once a month when they inevitably break. The Tulves sit so nicely and comfortably that I actually wake up with them right where I left them in my ear. It is truly amazing and totally life-saving. As you can tell, I am utterly in love with Studio, And you can be too with a really nice 15% discount when you guys use the code MENSREA, M-E-N-S-R-E-A at checkout. They do free worldwide shipping on all orders as well. So this is a deal you can't miss. And remember, supporting our sponsors is supporting us too. So once again, head to studio.com, that's studio, S-U-D-I-O dot com, and enter mensrea, M-E-N-S-R-E-A, at checkout. Or click on the link in the show notes for this episode and get listening in style. And now on to the show. You're listening to the Men's Rea podcast. And this is the story of Karen Buckley. is a small, tight-knit community just south of Mallow in County Cork. It's a typical rural farming community, perhaps just a bit on the smaller side than usual. There are no housing estates, just bungalows and farmhouses on roads lined with hedgerows that can just about fit two cars down them. Everyone knows everyone, and the community centre and the GAA club which are right next to one another, are the meeting points for the people in the area. Born in 1991, Karen Buckley was the youngest child of John and Marion Buckley and was raised in Moore Abbey. 
She had three older brothers who doted on her. All of the Buckley children played Gaelic games in the local club in Moorn Abbey, and they all went to St. Mary's Secondary School in nearby Mallow Town, about a 20-minute journey by car. Karen is described as an ambitious, well-liked young woman who was kind, considerate, and devoted to her family. By all accounts, she had a very happy upbringing, and was very close with her brothers. She had a close group of friends whom she loved. She was a well-adjusted and happy-go-lucky girl. A typical young Irish woman. She had worked in the Hibernian Hotel in Mallow part-time in their bar, and one of her colleagues said that every time they saw Karen, she had a smile on her face. That was the kind of girl that Karen was. After she finished secondary school, she had gotten her nursing degree at the University of Limerick, and after her graduation there, like many nursing graduates, she'd moved abroad to the UK. She took up a position at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Essex. She enjoyed her work there. She had travelled a bit after school and during college to Thailand and through South America, and liked new experiences, and was working only an hour north of London. It was a great place for a young person starting out to be, and she really enjoyed her time there. While she settled into her new career, she realised that she had a real passion and interest in occupational therapy. She liked getting people back on their feet. But to move into that specialty would mean more studies, so she decided to apply to do a postgraduate degree. In January of 2015, she took up her place to continue her studies and moved north from Essex to Glasgow. She would be attending the Glasgow Caledonian University. She took a flat in the Garnet Hill area of Glasgow after moving, which she shared with three other students, easing herself into city life. There, she was close to the city centre and to transport links, and a short enough walk from the college itself. By early 2015, Karen had started settling in and making friends in her new home. The girls she was with were all new to the city, and together they were still exploring their new surroundings. They would often try out new places on their nights out. And so that's what they were doing on Saturday the 11th of April. The girls had gotten dressed up, with Karen donning a stylish black jumpsuit and red heels, and they started off the night with pre-drinks in their flat. Then they decided to go out. They headed to the Sanctuary Nightclub on the Dunbarton Road in Glasgow's West End, about a mile and a half from their flat, so a 30-minute walk or a 10-minute taxi ride. Not at all far away in the grand scheme of things. The place is a typical club, dark and noisy, but with colourful LED lights lighting up the dance floors. The building is painted black with blacked-out windows, definitely a nighttime venue with loud music and booths for friends to huddle in between dances. It was a typical busy night at the club, and the girls arrived about a quarter to midnight. They grabbed a table, ordered some drinks, and continued to relax and have a good time. They were all in good form that night. They were getting comfortable in their new surroundings and exams were just far enough away to not be a worry. The girls laughed and joked with one another. The only thing even approaching drama at the table was when one of the girls' zips broke in their dress 
and Karen had handed over her black jacket to help her friend cover the gap left in the dress. After being at the nightclub for about an hour, Karen picked up her handbag and told her group she was heading to the toilet. But she never returned to the table. When the girls realized that Karen had been gone a while, they thought that maybe she'd just left and gone home without saying goodbye. She'd taken her bag, after all, and though she'd left her jacket behind her, maybe she thought her friend needed it more. Though it was strange for Karen to leave like that. She wasn't the kind of girl to go off by herself. These things do happen. So the true worry didn't kick in until the next morning when the girls in the flat realised that Karen hadn't come home. This was totally and entirely out of character. Not only that, she hadn't appeared online either. She was an avid user of social media. What's more, her phone had been turned off too. There was no way Karen hadn't come home and not contacted someone to let them know where she was or who she was with. Karen had travelled a lot. She was careful about all those safety rules we get drilled into us. It was not like her to be out of touch, away from her flat and her friends, without letting someone know what she was up to. By lunchtime on Sunday the 12th, Karen's friends were really worried. They'd no idea where Karen had got to. She hadn't posted online since the night before, and she wasn't answering her phone or texts. They decided to go to the police. By that stage, they hadn't seen Karen for 12 hours. The police listened to her friend's concerns and accepted that it would be totally out of character for Karen to not return home, or to be out of contact with her friends for that period of time. Scottish police swung into action and began looking for the missing student. They were hopeful she'd turn up herself sometime later that day, but given how odd this behaviour was for the nursing student, they decided to be on the safe side and get the search up and running. By late afternoon or early evening that day, the police made contact with Karen's family back in Ireland to tell them that it seemed as if Karen was missing. They also knew immediately that something was terribly wrong that Karen wouldn't just go off like that, and so they began arranging transport to get themselves from Cork to Glasgow as soon as possible to assist in the search. Police spoke to the girls that Karen had been with that Saturday night and went to the Sanctuary Club to see if there was anything of use on the CCTV from that night. Karen was in fact spotted on the footage outside the bar that night. She was talking to a man just outside the door, and it appeared that the two left just shortly after one, walking away from the club and away from the city centre. The CCTV from the surrounding area was also pulled to try and track her movements further. She was seen walking along the Dumbarton Road, again with a male figure and still in the opposite direction from her flat. News broke quickly that a girl had gone missing in Glasgow's West End. Karen's face made the news both in the UK and at home when it became clear that the missing student in Scotland was actually from Cork. The first press conference was held by police on Monday the 13th, where they outlined where Karen had been and what she looked like, down to the curly black hair extensions she'd been wearing that night. 
and that it was out of character for her to be out of contact like this. On Tuesday, with still no sign of Karen, the Scottish police held another press conference, this time with the Buckleys appealing for information and the return of their only daughter. The couple appeared shocked, and their speech was stilted and unsure as they asked for Karen to get in touch with them, or whoever had their daughter, to please return her. They said that they were desperate for her return, devastated they didn't know where she was, and that they dearly loved their only daughter. The police hoped that this televised appeal, which again made the nightly news both in the UK and in Ireland, and was shared over and over on social media, might have some effect on whoever it might be that would have further information about whatever had happened to Karen. They were sure that the emotions and rawness in the appeal by Karen's devastated and worried parents would have a much greater effect in eliciting a response than any press conference or statement that they would be able to make. At the same press conference, police appealed at the same time for the man who had been seen briefly speaking with Karen in the CCTV outside the Sanctuary nightclub to come forward. Police were looking for any information at all to point them in the direction of where Karen was and why she was missing. But behind the scenes, and away from the cameras, they told Karen's parents that they were in fact questioning a young man, the one that she'd been seen walking with up the Dunbarton Road, and explained to them the various lines of inquiry that were being undertaken. But everyone was hopeful that at that stage, Karen would be found and returned to her family. So, unknown to the public, police had already identified the man in the footage, and had interviewed him. He was 21-year-old Alexander Pacteau. He said that he'd met Karen outside the pub at about 1am, and that they'd gone back to his place. He'd driven them the ten minutes in his car to his flat on Dorchester Avenue. He told the police that while there, they'd had consensual sex. At some point that night, Pacteau told police that Karen had banged her head off his bedpost, cutting her forehead, and leaving blood on his bedsheets. But, he said, she'd been fine. It was just an accident. Pacteau told the police that Karen had left sometime around 4am. Last he'd seen her, she was fine. His flat on Dorchester Avenue was searched, and Pacteau was brought to a Holiday Inn hotel to stay until police were done. There, he was under police surveillance. Meanwhile, hundreds of police officers were out searching for any sign of Karen Buckley. Reporters were keeping a close eye out for developments in the story, and quickly headed to the road where the flat was being searched to find out more. Journalists from the Daily Record papers had even run background searches on the residents of the street to try and figure out who police were interested in. They met one of Pacto's neighbours, who confirmed that it was in fact the 21-year-old that had been brought in for interview by police officers. And now the media had a name to put to the grainy, shadowed face that people had seen in the CCTV footage. The reporters looked into Pacto, trying to find out anything they could about the man who was last known to have spoken to Karen, and they ended up tracking down his mother. When she was contacted, she told the press that her son was not a suspect. He was merely helping the police in their search for Karen, 
Yes, her son had seen Karen that night, and yes, she had been in his flat. But, she told the press, her son had seen her leave his flat early that morning. And that's what he'd told the police. Pacto's mother had said he wasn't a suspect, but the press now had a name and a face, and they ran with the story. Quickly, Pacto ended up on the front page of the Daily Record. Both the public and press wanted more information about this person, who was an obvious suspect in the hunt for the missing 24-year-old. And soon, more became publicly known about Alexander Pacto's background. It turned out that his life had started off quite privileged. His parents were wealthy, and he was one of four children. Pacto and his siblings were sent to a prestigious grammar school, Kelvinside Academy. He was an average student, a bit of a loner, but had enjoyed playing football. In his teenage years, before he could finish school, Pacto's father lost his career business, and his parents' marriage broke up. Pacto essentially lost everything he knew. He transferred to a state school, Bearsden Academy, where it was expected he'd finish up and head off to university. But he dropped out at the age of 17 to start his own courier business, which failed. For the rest of his teenage years, he lived in council flats with his mother. He eventually moved out to live with his father again, but apparently he didn't get on with his dad's new partner, and he was kicked out of the house. So Pacto was on his own and found his own places to live. Eventually, he ended up sharing the flat in Doncaster Avenue, where he lived off state welfare. He described himself as a self-employed sales consultant, but in reality had worked odd jobs in a garden shop and selling fireworks. Up until his arrest, he was listed as the director of an online furniture company, but this wasn't making him any money, or at least not enough to live on. A workmate in one of these odd jobs described Pacto as a gentle giant. He said that the young man was happy-go-lucky and had a good sense of humour. But he was strange, and went on to describe Pacto as a fantasist. He told everyone that someday he was going to be a millionaire. He also told his co-workers, candidly, that he liked to visit prostitutes. Pacto said, he liked the fact that he was in control of the situation with them. When he was brought to the Helen Street Police Station in Glasgow, when he was brought to the Helen Street Police Station in Glasgow, it emerged that this wasn't the first time that Pacto had found himself involved in crime either. He had been arrested before on a forgery charge. He had made a couple thousand pounds worth of photocopies of banknotes but was caught by Scottish police before he had managed to get any of those notes into circulation. For those charges, he did 225 hours of community service. More worryingly, Pacto had also been arrested at the age of 17, after he was accused of attempting to rape a 24-year-old woman in a dark lane in the west end of Glasgow, the same area that he had picked Karen Buckley up from the night she went missing. He stood trial for that in 2013. While waiting for that trial to occur, he had been in a bad car accident, which left him in a coma for a month. He had to relearn to walk and appeared in court on two crutches. During that trial, he told the court that he was in fact gay and that he had simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time the night of the attack. He said this woman had in fact attacked him. This alleged victim said, however, 
that they were heading home together and were walking down the lane to get a taxi. By her account, it was raining and suddenly Pacteau had thrown her against the wall and tried to rape her. But the jury found Pacteau not guilty of this attempted rape. When the alleged victim in this case saw Pacteau's face on the news linked to the search for Karen Buckley, she wrote to the Scottish Justice Secretary and told him what had happened to her. Press followed the police around Glasgow like puppies looking for any scrap of information on their lead story that they could turn into copy. But the sensationalism surrounding the story did throw up new information about Pacto and gave the police new leads to follow. After seeing the reporting about Karen's disappearance and recognising Pacto from the coverage of the case, a man came forward with some information. He had no idea if it would be of any significance whatsoever, but police had appealed for anything, even if it might seem inconsequential, to be reported to them. This man had worked with Pacto and told the police that he remembered the young man had used a storage shed out at a place called High Creighton Farm to keep fireworks in. The farm is north of Glasgow, only about six miles or so, making it about a 15-minute drive but it's well and truly into the countryside. Once you're past the last housing estate, it's all fields and farmland. High Craigton Farm is itself off the main road, down the end of a far more country-looking lane than the road you come off. You meet outbuildings before the old farmhouse itself, all of them tidy-looking whitewashed buildings. Really, it's just your typical farmyard. The police decided that this sounded like somewhere Pacto would likely return to if he needed to hide evidence, and so they quickly decided to go check out the farm. Search teams travelled the short distance to High Craigton, and very shortly after, Karen's body was found. The area was sealed off as a crime scene, and shortly after, the press arrived too. They had been following the police's every move, and as officers were searching a tree-covered area of the farm, which had a scorch mark within it, indicating a fire had recently been lit there, one of the reporters actually discovered something that might have been evidence. About two metres outside the cordoned-off area, a reporter from the Daily Record found a gold-coloured, diamond-shaped dangly earring, which she recognised from pictures that had circulated of Karen Buckley. The reporter immediately notified nearby officers who began searching that area too and moved their cordon back a number of metres. When Karen's remains were identified, word was immediately sent to the officers who had been keeping an eye on the 21-year-old man. And so Pacto was arrested as he sat in a Starbucks coffee shop. By the end of the week, the 17th of April, Pacto was charged with the murder of Karen Buckley and appeared before the Glasgow Sheriff's Court, where he made no comment before being remanded in custody. The same day, a vigil was held in Karen's memory in Glasgow City Centre. A piper played, and Irish and Scottish songs were sung before a moment of silence was held in her memory. Her parents, John and Marion, were present there before returning home to Cork to hold their daughter's funeral on the 28th of April in their local church. While he was in custody, the police interviewed Pacto again in order to find out exactly what had happened to Karen on the night she went missing 
and in order to build their case against him. Pacteau was calm and measured in his interviews with the police. He seemed interested in the work that they were doing and requested copies of each of the statements he had made. He was engaged with them and later told someone he had actually been enjoying himself being interviewed. He was interviewed a total of four times, each time telling the police a different story to try and explain the evidence that they presented him with. His first story was, of course, the one where Karen had left his house. He then told the police that he had acted in self-defence and that it was Karen who had attacked him first, out of the blue. But this was contradicted by the post-mortem examination that had been conducted before Karen was returned to Cork for burial. Defensive injuries were noted on her arms, indicating that she'd been attacked and had tried to fight off the six-foot-four toe. By autumn of 2015, the police investigation was nearly complete and Pacto began appearing in court on the charges before him, murder and the perversion of the course of justice. But then the Crown got word that Pacto was going to enter a guilty plea. This was a very unusual move given the seriousness of the charges, but given the sheer amount of evidence gathered against Pacto, it was nearly inevitable. It would be hard to see what kind of defence could be mounted in such circumstances. It was in court at his pleading diet that for the first time the public learned exactly what had happened to Karen, as the facts of the case were presented to the court for the record before sentencing. On August 11th, Pacto appeared before the Scottish High Court and entered his guilty plea in relation to the murder charge before him. By this stage, he had been in custody since April 17th, and the charges of perverting the course of justice had by that point, for reasons unknown, been dropped by the Crown. At that time, the Lord Advocate, then Frank Mulholland, Queen's Counsel, outlined the case against Pacteau to the court and Lady Rita Ray, who was presiding. The Lord Advocate stated that on Sunday the 11th of April, Karen had been at her flat on Hill Street with friends, having a few drinks. They decided then to go out to a club for a bit. They weren't drinking heavily though, just socialising and having a good time. Karen wasn't drunk. Her friend said so, and this seemed confirmed by what the CCTV had picked up that night in the sanctuary. Karen was in good spirits, yes, but she had her wits about her. There was nothing out of the ordinary about that night. They'd all been chatting and having a good time. Her friends had reported that all was going well for Karen generally. She was getting on with her studies and her coursework was going well. She didn't have any serious worries or problems at the time. Meanwhile, Alexander Pacteau was with seven or eight friends that night, drinking too. They'd started off in his flat and had decided again to go out to a club. The group of lads rang for taxis to bring them to the sanctuary, but given their numbers, they'd have to go in two trips. So when the first car arrived, some of the young men left, leaving the others behind. But it was a Saturday night and busy. Pacteau was impatient and just wanted to go out. He didn't want to wait on another taxi, and they could be quite hard to find at that hour on a weekend night, and so he decided to drive himself, 
despite the fact that he'd been drinking. He got in to his silver Ford Focus and drove himself to the club. He stayed there until just around 1am when he left the club and was caught on CCTV, standing around outside. One commentator in the TV3 documentary Disclosure described him as lurking, which is a fairly accurate statement given what is portrayed in the footage. Shortly after, Karen Buckley is also seen leaving the club on the CCTV and later is captured walking alongside Alexander Pacteau back in the direction of his parked car. Though they are in fact walking together, they don't look like a couple or anything on the footage. They're walking with a bit of space between them. They don't touch. There's no indication from their body language that this is a young couple on their way home together, or any real indication that they're friendly or familiar with one another. They're just two people walking down the road together, who for all intents and purposes seem to have bumped into one another on the street just a few minutes before. When the full CCTV from inside the club that night was reviewed, there was no indication that Karen and Pacteau had met earlier in the night or spoken with one another. From the way they were walking together and the direction they were going, it looked as if Karen had simply accepted a lift from him, either to go home or back into town. Pacteau did initially drive in the direction of Karen's flat, but after driving together for a few minutes, he turned onto Kelvin Way, where he pulled the car over and parked. CCTV caught the car as it parked and sat on the dark road. Despite being in a busy city, Kelvin Way cut through parks and recreational areas, and the tree-lined street was quiet at that time of night. The car was pulled over there for a total of 12 minutes and 46 seconds. And so it was between a quarter past one and twenty past one that Karen Buckley died. Pacto had hit her with a wrench, fourteen or fifteen times, for reasons unknown. Her friends back at the sanctuary were only beginning to wonder where she'd gone. After that, Pacto began driving again. He went first to Dawson Park, another quiet, open space, this time just short of a mile north of his own home, and dumped Karen's bag in a rubbish bin at its entrance. He was home in his flat on Dorchester Avenue by 2am. He brought Karen's body from his car up to the flat and into his bedroom, where he wrapped her in a sheet, and then he went to sleep. The next morning, Pacteau woke up and began googling on his phone. Of particular interest to him were the properties of caustic soda, also known as lye or sodium hydroxide. He knew he needed to figure out a way to get rid of the body that was now just lying in his room, wrapped in bedclothes. He locked his bedroom door, went downstairs and then got into his car, and drove to a nearby B&Q shop, like Lowe's or Home Depot for our American listeners. There, at 9.42, he was caught again on CCTV purchasing six litres of caustic soda, along with a mask and gloves. Then he drove to a pound stretcher discount store and bought yet more caustic soda. When he got home, he moved Karen's body into the bathtub and covered it with the caustic soda, attempting to dissolve the evidence of his crime. 
His flatmate was out of the house, but according to a text message, would be returning at about 8pm. Pacto was worried about being caught out and tried to speed up the chemical process by making a large incision in Karen Buckley's body, opening her chest and abdomen. But that didn't work. So at about 5pm, Pacto drained the bathtub and once more hid Karen's body back in his bedroom. The next morning at about 5am on Monday the 13th of April, Pacto went to the 4th and Clyde Canal. He threw the spanner that he had used to beat Karen to death into the water. Then he went shopping once more. He bought white spirits, a lighter, clothes for cleaning, and padlocks. At a Tesco supermarket, he stopped a member of staff to ask for their advice about the best cleaning product to use to get blood out of a mattress. Then he made his first trip out to High Creighton Farm. That morning, he took various items from his flat out to the farm to dispose of them. His mattress, a duvet, a suitcase, and Karen's clothing. He burned all of them. After that, he went online and ordered a large blue industrial-type plastic barrel from a packaging company. He collected the item, brought it back to his flat, and put Karen's body into it. Then he filled it with caustic soda and other drain-cleaning chemicals. A neighbour later said that he saw Pacto struggling with the barrel, trying to get the thing into the boot of his car, and eventually he managed it. Pacto had agreed to rent a storage locker for a week from the farmer at High Craigton for a total of £10. It was more of a shed in an outbuilding, though. In fact, as you approach the farm at High Craigton, it was part of the first outbuilding that you come across, with large sheet metal doors to cover it. In it, he put the large blue barrel. He covered it up with a sheet, and to try and make the barrel look as unassuming as possible, as if it had been there for some time, he placed some random junk on top of it, a wheel from a bicycle, and an old paper shredder. Then he took the padlock that he had purchased and locked the contents inside. Pacto arrived back to the flat for the final time that day, his work now complete at about 5pm. But by that stage, unbeknownst to Pacto, the police had already identified him and called to the house. When they arrived at the flat on Dorchester Avenue about 30 minutes earlier, there had been no answer at the door, and so police had contacted Pacto's landlord. He agreed to help them gain access to the flat, and so the landlord and the police arrived back on Pacto's doorstep at half past five that Monday evening. This time, though, they didn't need to knock on the door. The landlord let them straight in, and when they found Alexander Pacto, he was in his bedroom cleaning the carpet. His room reeked of bleach. The mattress on his bed frame was too small, and there were no sheets on the bed. There was a toolbox out and a roll of tape and a few nail brushes strewn across the floor. Pacto looked up at them and told the police that he had been going to contact them later that day. While Pacto's car was being taken away for forensic examination, police got notification that Karen's handbag had been found in a bin near the park. This gave the police some pause, 
Perhaps what Pacto was saying was indeed right. Maybe Karen had left his place and started her journey home in the early hours of Sunday morning, and something else had become of her on that journey. She had been known to make her own way home on foot before. It was about a three-mile journey and would have taken her about an hour to walk it. And it wasn't beyond the realms of possibility that she had passed by Dawson Park on her way there. It would have been the long way round, but still, possible. But all of this speculation came to an abrupt end when Pacto's car was examined. A police dog alerted at blood in Pacto's car. Soil from his tyre treads matched that from the farm where the body had been found, and his fingerprints had been found on the inside of the blue barrel. The search for Karen Buckley had involved 500 police officers, and it cost around £5 million. Eventually, Pacto admitted that he was in fact responsible for Karen's death, but not right away. And so, on the 8th of September 2015, Pacto appeared once again in the South Court of Glasgow's High Court. In a break from the norm, cameras were allowed inside the courtroom due to the interest in the case both nationally and abroad here in Ireland. People rightly wanted to hear the judgment of the court in sentencing Pacto for his crimes. The judge, Lady Rita Ray, gave a lengthy sentencing statement, outlining the reasoning behind her decision. She noted that by the time Pacto revealed to police the location of Karen's body, they had in fact already found it themselves, thanks to a response to the appeal for information to the public. Even after this, though, she said Pacto had continued to lie, referencing his second story that Karen had attacked him. From the point of his first contact with the police, he had continued to attempt to conceal his crime, despite the fact that he must have known the great distress the Buckleys were in at that time. She rejected the idea that Pacto had covered up his crime out of panic, given it had taken days to move Karen's body and the other items of evidence from the flat in Dorchester Avenue. Lady Ray also noted that, despite what Pacto's lawyer had told the court, that his client expressed remorse for his actions, the criminal justice social work report that she had access to indicated that at no point did Pacto demonstrate regret for his actions that night. She then went on to discuss whether she could take Mr. Pacto's behaviour after the killing into account for the purposes of sentencing. This would not at all have been an issue had the Crown continued to pursue the charge of attempting to defeat the ends of justice, but given that they had inexplicably now been dropped, which Lady Ray basically said she didn't understand, she felt the need to explain how she went about taking it into account in her sentence. She said that the only thing that really complicated the matter was simply that the Crown had laid and then dropped the charges, and that it would be common to take into account a perpetrator's actions after the fact of a murder. Pacto in this case had gone to great lengths to cover up his crime, not only with his attempts to destroy and conceal Karen's body, but by giving Scottish police a number of stories about what had actually happened that night. She said that all of these were aggravating factors which she was entitled to take account of in her sentencing, although due to the dropped charges, she was not allowed to enhance the sentence because of them. 
She described Pacto as a, quote, callous and calculating man, before handing down a life sentence with a minimum of 25 years to be served. She suspended two of those years due to Pacto's early guilty plea. After this minimum sentence has been served, he will then be able to appeal for parole. And he might not get it. During the sentencing, Pacto sat mere feet away from Karen's family, who had travelled from Cork to hear the judgment of the court. Despite their close proximity, Pacto kept his back turned to the Buckleys, his hulking frame slouched away from them, so that he wouldn't have to meet their eyes. The guilty plea certainly came as a relief to Karen's family, who would now not have to face a lengthy trial. They made a public statement after Pacto's sentencing. Karen's father stood outside the court and read for the gathered press, while her mother stood next to him, holding a picture of their daughter. Both John and Marion were stoic in the face of the cameras and microphone, but John spoke with sincerity and conviction. He said in part, quote, Today's life sentence will not bring our beautiful Karen back. Our little angel has been taken from us forever, in the cruelest of ways. We mourn for her every day. It will, however, ensure that women are safe from harm, from the truly evil coward who took our beautiful Karen's precious life. I hope that he is never released and spends every day in prison, haunted by what he did. End quote. Astonishingly, two weeks after his sentencing, Pacto and his advocate team lodged an appeal against the severity of the sentence itself but in December of that year, he withdrew it. Initially, Pacto was resident in Her Majesty's Prison Shots in Lanarkshire, but was moved to Kilmarnock Prison for his own safety. He'd become a target for other violent offenders behind bars when it came to light what he had done, and there was a plot to harm him uncovered. To mark the one-year anniversary of Karen's death, the School of Health and Life Sciences in Glasgow Caledonian University, held a small remembrance service for Karen. Meanwhile, in Mornabi in Cork, Karen's family and friends gathered at the church that Karen had been baptised in, and where her funeral had been held, in another remembrance service. The Buckleys also made a statement which was published in the Irish Examiner, thanking both the Irish and Scottish police forces, and everyone who had supported them through the most difficult of times. In November of 2016, Karen was posthumously awarded her Master's of Science in Occupational Therapy by Glasgow Caledonian University. Her father John collected the degree on her behalf at the Royal Concert Hall in Glasgow. He said that he and his family wanted to celebrate Karen's achievements privately. Afterwards, some of those graduating in the same cohort said that it was hard not to cry as the bereaved father took to the stage to collect the parchment. Despite his relatively happy upbringing and stable family home throughout much of his childhood, Pacto seems to have had his problems. He didn't really have any healthy relationships with women, and he'd had trouble meeting girls. Later, people who had hung around with him told police that they'd heard him make off-colour remarks about how to dispose of a body, or about attacking a woman. It seemed that the night Pacto killed Karen, he had simply seen an opportunity and taken it. Looking back, police would try and figure out if there was any way anyone could have stopped Pacto from killing, but
but there weren't any real warning signs that this young man was a danger. And yes, he had been to court on a charge with a violent sexual nature, but he'd been found not guilty by a jury of his peers. It will be 2038 before Alexander Pacto will be eligible for release on parole, and there's no guarantee that it'll be granted. At least for now, women in Glasgow are safe from his random attacks, and the Buckley family can now rest assured that the man who killed their daughter and sister in cold blood is off the streets. Glasgow and Scotland mourned the death of the 24-year-old nurse and that something so awful had happened there. But the focus of the Buckley family now is on remembering Karen, the smiling, confident young woman that Karen was, and how much joy and happiness she brought into the world. Not that it was tragically and violently torn away. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I love hearing from you, so do get in touch. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Wanda, Quiva Blair, and Michelle McDonald. You guys are the best. Each and every one of my patrons helps to make sure that this podcast keeps going, and for that, there are perks, like stickers and magnets, and more importantly, up to two monthly bonus episodes. So go check it out. Thank you once again to our sponsors for this week's episode, Studio Sweden. Check out the links in the show notes and head to studio.com to check out their quality sound and design. Don't forget to enter code MENSREA, M-E-N-S-R-E-A, at checkout for a 15% discount. Next time, we're heading to Hoth to talk about a murder in the exclusive North Dublin suburb, which tore a family apart. Our theme music is Quinsong, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensoreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. What's going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And we're from Going West. A true crime podcast where we discuss various murders, disappearances, and unsolved crimes. We release new episodes every Monday, and each week we have a different case to dive into. You can find us over on Instagram at Going West Podcast. And on Twitter at Going West Pod. Listen to some of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast, where you can get exclusive bonus ad-free episodes every month. If you're looking for a new true crime binge, check out Going West. For everybody out there in the world, keep it real and stay weird. Cheerio. Cheerio.